The Polyvagal Theory has three brand new additions to the mixed states. Intimacy, fawning, and appeasement. I'll cover appeasement in this episode of my Polyvagal 201 series. My name's Justin Sinceri. I'm a therapist, coach, and the creator of the Polyvagal Trauma Relief System. Welcome to Stuck Not Broken, where I teach you how to live with more calm, confidence, and connection without the psychobabble. But today, we are going to be focusing on deepening our learning and understanding of the polyvagal theory. At the end, I'm also going to share a really quick thought about polyvagal criticisms and what I will be doing with them. So Portis has a new book coming out as of this recording. It comes out in a couple of weeks, I think. Uh, he wrote it with his son, or actually really his son You know, wrote it. In my last episode, I interviewed Dr. Porges or chatted with him, and he kind of spelled out that Seth wrote it, and it sounds like uh, Dr. Porges, you know, gave it the uh, stamp of approval. And I'll do a book review very soon, uh, but it's called Our Polyvagal World. For now, just I, I do overall recommend it. I will have an Amazon affiliate link to order it in the description. So Our Polyvagal World discusses the application of the polyvagal theory to various life domains like incarceration and schools, but it also adds three new mixed states to the polyvagal theory, which are intimacy, fawn, and appeasement. Appeasement and fawn are also discussed by uh, Rebecca Bailey, J.C. Dugard, Stephanie Smith, and Dr. Porges in a paper called Appeasement, Replacing Stockholm Syndrome as a Definition of a Survival Strategy, and I'll have a link for you in the description for that. What is appeasement through the lens of the polyvagal theory? The basic idea is that appeasement is a sort of co-regulatory mixed state when in the face of extreme danger, like in a hostage situation, I think the isolation aspect of this is really important. Appeasement through the polyvagal theory lens is conceptualized as more of a replacement for Stockholm syndrome. And in that article, it makes it really clear as to why that is. We should view appeasement as a two-way neurobiological interaction, or as in the, in the paper it says, or it calls it a super social engagement. This is the ability to use social interaction, even when in these extreme dangerous situations. Even though it's called a super social engagement and co-regulation, that I'm not saying that's not true, but it seems to, to me at least, to be more of a function of de-escalation. Not actual co-regulation, like it's not resulting, as far as I can tell, it's not resulting in the perpetrator becoming more empathetic and compassionate and truly accessing their safe and social state. It seems to be more about de-escalating the potential of harm from the perpetrator. It also seems to be directly connected to being isolated from others. But maybe enough co-regulation, you know, is what's happening and that is resulting in de-escalation and really neutralizing the defensive state of the perpetrator or neutralizing it enough to where significant bodily harm uh, or death is averted. Appeasement actually is something that we see in other mammals as well. I found this article, I'll, I'll put a link in the description, it's from the Cleveland Clinic. And it's more, it's on Stockholm Syndrome, they use the language of Stockholm Syndrome. But in that article, they say one theory, as, as far as like what, you know, what purpose appeasement might serve, it says that one theory is that this is a learned technique passed down from our ancestors. In the early civilization, there was always a risk of being captured or killed by another social group. Bonding with captors increased the chance of survival. 
So they're postulating this as a learned technique. I think Porges would say it's more of a biological predisposition to extreme isolation circumstances or captivity. And I think they're pretty much saying something similar, but the lens of it is is more, on one hand, is more of a, of a learned social thing versus something that's ingrained into our DNA as a potential response to extreme situations. In that appeasement article I referenced before from Porges, it says that social connection to the perpetrator may be experienced as a type of lifeline. So social connection, we should probably view this as, or at least accessing social connection is is directly connected to safety. When it comes to looking at this as like a biological uh, thing or a neurobiological interaction between two organisms, we should look at the benefit of connection, even if it is in extreme situations. Our bodies, the mammalian bodies, we do better when we have more access to our safety state. When our safety state's active, we have more capacity to have homeostasis, which is basically utilizing our body's resources for health and growth and restoration. So simply connecting with somebody, even in a situation like this, actually may have uh, better results, not just for survival, but also for our body's utilization or use of its resources in, in maintaining homeostasis. So I wouldn't view this as um, like a choice-driven sort of thing. I don't think someone is consciously choosing to connect with their perpetrator in, in uh, when, it, when it comes to appeasement. Instead, we want to look at this as a biological drive that optimizes resources. Dissociation is going to be a factor in appeasement as well, because that's going to help to buffer the understanding of the severity of the situation and the, the life threat potential of it. In other words, uh, existing in a dissociative state is an adaptation that allows that person to not enter a full-on shutdown, which would be life-threatening. So instead of completely shutting down, the body is able to enter into a more dissociative, disconnected state, which allows basic functioning to continue and the chance of survival increases, but the dissociation keeps that individual from truly recognizing maybe the impact of what they're doing and, and the connection they have with, with the perpetrator. So this is a mixed state. And the question you are probably asking is, well, what states are active in the appeasement mixed state? And the answer to that is all of them. Uh, the first one is obviously the safety state. There is enough activation of the safety state to provide cues of co-regulation to the perpetrator or the captor. And the paper also argues that the flight fight state is probably active as well in order to mobilize if the opportunity arises to escape. There does also seem to be a significant amount of dissociation when it comes to appeasement. So shutdown is a big part of this as well. That dissociation, again, allows for disconnecting from the experience, which kind of entails that the individual sacrifice their personal values in order to connect with the perpetrator and increase their chances of survival. I really struggled with understanding appeasement, also fun, which I'll talk about more next time as best I can. But I really struggled with understanding this in terms of the polyvagal theory and it being its own mixed state. But I found this article called When Agreement is Not Consent. I'll link to that in the description as well. It's a great article and it really helped me understand what the heck appeasement is and how it connects to the polyvagal theory, especially in terms of a, like a biological uh, reaction to distress or to extreme situations. And there was this video in that article uh, of a dog 
that was appeasing another dog. So one dog was like the dominant one and had this like this growl to it. And the other dog was, as it got close to the dominant dog, the dominant dog would growl and then the other dog would roll over onto its back. It it was mobile because it was stiff, but it would also do things like lick the dominant dog's face. So it was submissive. It completely surrendered its power to the other dog, but also tried to connect and appease it or connect to it through uh, social interaction like licking. So when I saw that, that was like, oh, that might be all those states active at once where they're immobilized, but also mobilized at the same time and freeze. And there is some uh, social uh, outreach or social connection going on there or an attempt to to show, hey, I'm not a threat to you. There's many potential experiences when it comes to appeasement, but uh, I'm going to highlight three of these here for you. One of the potential experiences of appeasement is positive feelings toward the captors or the abusers. I found this quote from Britannica.com when it comes to Stockholm Syndrome, and they say, Psychologists who have studied the syndrome believe that the bond is initially created when a captor threatens a captive's life, deliberates, and then chooses not to kill the captive. The captive's relief at the removal of the death threat is transposed into feelings of gratitude toward the captor for giving him or her life. Britannica sadly does not or at least I didn't see it given a, a citation for whoever those psychologists are who studied Stockholm Syndrome and said that the uh, the captive's relief at the removal of the death threat is transposed into feelings of gratitude. Uh, so I, I don't know the exact source for that, sadly, but it makes sense because the captors probably connecting their own well-being to the happiness of, to, to use the word very loosely, to the happiness of their captor. Remember that our, our nervous system adapts based on the need of survival. So in order to survive, our nervous system potentially could enter into this uh, appeasement state where we are surrendering in order to reduce the threat of another. We shouldn't look at this as a choice exactly. It's, it's that some people will have this capacity to offer up co-regulatory cues to another. But it's really about adapting to the need of survival. Another experience that is possible of appeasement is sympathy for their captors' beliefs, behaviors, and goals. So the captive identifies that their potential to survive is directly connected to the captor's goals. So it may look like they have sympathy for the goals of the captor. The captive's learning that compliance and submission to the captor's goals will get their needs met which have otherwise been cut off. Remember, this happens in extreme isolation. Part of Stockholm Syndrome or part of appeasement might be that negative feelings toward police or other authority figures may occur. These authority figures are a potential threat to the captive's uh, survival, even though, at least while in captivity, even though these authority figures are supposed to help, right? But in that situation, in isolation, uh, in uh, duress and life threat, the captive is now in agreement, in a sense, with the captor on their goals, but also viewing others as dangerous or as a, as a threat because the captive's needs for survival are being met by the captor. And appeasement is a major way of continuing to get their needs met. Don't look at this again as like they're choosing or that they like to 
be a part of this type of relationship. Think of it in terms of the polyvagal ladder. The captive cannot connect with the other person in a very meaningful, safe and social kind of way, but they can do so in in enough of a way to reduce threat. But they also cannot run away exactly. They can't fight exactly. They have been isolated and trapped, basically. They also can't exist in a shutdown state for very long because that would result in death. So the captive, as a mammal, is utilizing their best means of getting their needs met and of surviving. And that is existing in a dissociative state that also allows them to be mobilized for for running away if, if they can, but also allows them to surrender their own personal values and connect with the captor in a way that is convincing enough through co-regulatory cues to get the captor to reduce their defenses. And if you think about it that way, the potential for escape probably goes up. I don't know stats on how often this is effective, but I think we could see from a you know biological interaction between a captor and a captive through these neuroceptions of co-regulation or even pseudo-co-regulation that there's probably more of a chance of escape if the captor reduces their uh, their defensive level or their aggressive level. If the captor is feeling calmer, I'm not sure if that's the right word, or less defensive or less aggressive, then there may be some sort of pseudo-trust. There may be some sort of space given to the other person that allows them to get out of the situation. That's it for appeasement. I'll talk about fawn and intimacy in upcoming episodes, but I want to wrap this up with a really quick thought on polyvagal criticisms. Last In the last episode, I said I would be touching upon that and also my email newsletter I did, but I'm not going to. I did a lot of research into polyvagal criticisms. I take them seriously, but I'm almost a therapist. You know, it's so it's even though I can see the things that Portis talks about as far as what they get wrong and how they're not understanding the theory, I'm going to leave that up to Porges and the Polyvagal Institute to handle. So I think this is fascinating stuff, but I want to encourage you to go and read it from them in particular, but also to read Polyvagal Criticisms for yourself. I look at this as if there's two levels to criticisms, and one of those are you know people's blogs on the website or on Medium, but these are not primary critics. These are uh, these are pulling information from the primary critics, and these are interesting to read and they're more accessible. But to me, they're you, you, I don't take them too seriously. The primary critics are really only two people, and that's Grossman and Taylor. And Grossman pulls most of what he talks about from Taylor. So really, from what I can tell, there's really only one very serious critic of, of the polyvagal theory, and the other one, Grossman. He's more out in the forefront. He talks a lot about it. So you can find his stuff pretty easily if you, if you do a search for it. Just look for Grossman and polyvagal theory. But for the most part, what Portis says seems to be true. Like they're just not understanding the theory and, and what they're criticizing or responding to are what they think the theory says, but it's not what the theory says. But anyhow, there's only so far I can take this. I'm a therapist. I'm going to keep working on what I work on and focusing on trauma recovery and how to help people be the best version of themselves that they can. And I hope you're okay with that. If you really are into this stuff, go to the Polyvagal Institute. They have a bunch of free resources. Uh, Porges has responded to criticisms numerous times at this point, and they're for free and easily accessible as well. I'll have link for, links for you in the description 
to those rebuttals that Porges has uh, already put out there. That's really it. I don't want to use my time on it any more than I already have. I, it's interesting, but I don't think it's worth putting in much more time in, in all honesty. And I'm a therapist, so there's only so far I can take it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. One last thing for you, though. Uh, I have a website membership that you can sign up. It's free. It's different than my Stuck Not Broken Total Access membership. If you go to justinlmft.com, become a member of my site. Again, it's for free. There's a whole bunch of resources that I have there for you, like uh, my free polyvagal theory ebook that connects polyvagal theory to trauma and my learning hubs. And now that this new book is out with these new mixed states, I'm going to have to be updating everything. So now's a really good chance for you to become a free member. And very soon, I hope I will have those uh, resources updated for you with, yeah, all this new polyvagal stuff coming out. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening, fellow Stucknot. I do hope that this episode has been a helpful resource for you in understanding the polyvagal theory and the new addition to it, appeasement. Bye. This podcast is not therapy, not intended to be therapy or be a replacement for therapy. Nothing in this creates or indicates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek for one in your area if you are experiencing mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed to be specific life advice. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only. More resources are available in the description of this episode and in the footer of JustinLMFT.com.